Good morning. Uh, what a joy it is to be here with you this morning. As uh, Marshall said, my name is Stephen Armstrong. My family and I have traveled here from San Antonio, Texas to share the word with you. And it is a true blessing to be here. I want to thank uh, Marshall and Joan for the wonderful reception we've had and the good care they've provided. Uh, the music this morning was wonderful. And uh, you're very blessed, I can tell, to have the care and, and the guidance of, of Marshall and Joan and the gifts they bring to the fellowship. And thank you very much for bringing us here and making us feel so welcome. I, 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 you know, I was really stunned this morning as I drove in off the island where we're staying because uh, I knew they had gone to a lot of effort to make us feel at home. But when I saw the sign, Isle of Armstrong, I thought, you know, really? That's really going out of your way, I have to say. Uh, most people just give a small stipend, but to get a whole island, I thought... That, that was really beyond expectations. Um, I'll tell you just a minute about myself, but I want to get into the teaching today because that's really why we're here, of course. Uh, I'm the director of a ministry called Verse by Verse Ministry out of San Antonio. And uh, the purpose of our ministry really is a singular uh, and, and devoted to uh, the preaching of the whole counsel of God as we get opportunity to go through His Word. Uh, we believe that the first and really most important mission that the church was given by our Lord, as it's recorded in Matthew 28, is to go make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so often we come proclaiming the gospel, which is a certainly a good thing to do, obviously, but we often then forget that the real work of the Great Commission begins after the gospel is received, not before. It's in that long-term, that dedicated devotion to the discipling of the new believer that the real mission of the church is centered. It's in that role that the church is supposed to be doing the hard work, so that the, uh, not just that the unbeliever would come to know the truth of the gospel, but that the saints would be equipped for the work of ministry. And our mission, as, as God has given it to us in, in, the, in the small ministry we have in San Antonio, is singular in teaching God's word methodically, verse by verse, through the whole council as God gives opportunity. And I thank Marshall for the opportunity to, to do a little bit of that here today. For your benefit, I pray, and as well just to his dedication to the word, that he would make that a... Uh, a priority in this church and, and give opportunity for men like me to come in and, and support you with the Word. Uh, when Marshall and I talked about coming and my coming and speaking, he suggested a theme. He asked if I might consider a theme of renewal and reconciliation. And when I heard that, I asked him, well, how many Sundays do I get to preach? And he said, one. And I said, well, do I have to leave time for the choir? He said, yes. I said, all right, well, I'm going to have to take a different approach then to fitting in what I'd like to provide for you today, what I believe God has called me to bring to you today. You've probably heard it said that God first reconciled us to Him through His Son so that then we could be reconciled with one another. Sort of on two axes, sort of a vertical axis of us being reconciled to our Maker, followed then by an opportunity for us to know one another in a true love that He loved us with first. That's the horizontal axis. So there's sort of a two-sided approach to renewal and reconciliation. First with God and then secondly with one another. I'm going to address both those principles in my teachings here today. First, today, this morning, the horizontal, the vertical, and then tonight at six o'clock, the horizontal. And you all know, as, as Scripture tells us, that we are all born as enemies of God, born into a nature we inherit from Adam. We are at war with him from the day we are born. Our hearts are evil. God says in His Word. Our thoughts and our actions are never anything other than evil continually. But we are made new by the blood of Christ, and in that new life, we now have a capacity 
to be known by Him, to be loved by Him, and in so doing to then have the power of the Holy Spirit in us to sanctify us and make us more like Him. That's the basic message of the Gospel. I don't need to hopefully repeat that for you here. So the theme of renewal and reconciliation, though, is one, I think, as it cuts through the entirety of the Bible, is shown to us in a variety of ways. First and foremost in the Gospel, it's shown to us in clear terms, but it's available to us elsewhere as well. What I want to do for us today is take us back to a picture, a story out of uh, 2 Samuel, that pictures that reconciliation so perfectly, in fact, that Chuck Colson once said that the story out of 2 Samuel chapter 9 is the greatest illustration of grace in all the Old Testament. That story today will be the foundation for us, the framework for us to understand how that that reconciliation took place, what renewal is available to us through that reconciliation. And then as we go into the story tonight, uh, a different place, Luke chapter 6, we'll then see as a second part what God now expects out of us in terms of our reconciliation and renewal with one another based on what he first did for us. So if you have your Bibles, as I hope you do, or if not, Perhaps take the one from the person sitting next to you. Let them get their own. There's a, a story out of 2 Samuel chapter 9 that I want to teach on this morning. And let God's Word reveal itself to us. As we uh, go to prayer, as we look at the Scripture this morning, I want to pray for God's uh, anointing on this teaching and our time in His Word. Join me in prayer, please. Dear Heavenly Father, anoint Your servant this morning with Your Holy Spirit for the purpose of bringing Your Word to your children. I pray, Father, that my words would be your words, that my thoughts, Father, would be your thoughts, that the purposes you have intended for this morning and set long before we knew about it would be fulfilled by my obedience to your call. I pray, Father, our hearts have been prepared and would be open to the message and that all we would do and say this morning would bring you glory and would edify and and would build up the faithful to do the work of ministry. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 2 Samuel chapter 9, we'll begin in verse 1. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Let's stop there. When I said verse by verse, I meant it. No, actually, I'm stopping a bit quicker than normal. But I want you to see what we can learn about this story because I have to stop here in order to bring you some of the background of 2 Samuel chapter 9. By the time you reach 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is king of Israel by this point. If you've read and studied uh, Samuel 1 and Samuel 2, you know it's a story principally about how first Saul and then David came to be king over the nation of Israel. By the time you reach 2 Samuel 9, David's already in power at this point, having brought all of, his king, all of the kingdom of Israel under his authority following the death of Saul. You may remember Saul was the first king of Israel. He was the one that people wanted. Yes, he was anointed by Samuel, to be sure, but he had everything that the people expected out of a king. He was big. He was tall. He was strong. He was the one that, if you were judging who should be king from an outward perspective, you would pick Saul. And they chose the man based on what their eyes saw, and God gave them their choice so that they would see they were wrong, ultimately, in how they went about choosing a king. Because God does not choose on appearances. He does not see things the way men do. God's ways are not man's ways. And what God saw in Saul were things that the people could not appreciate when they looked upon his outward side. They saw only what they saw. What God saw looking inwardly to Saul was a man who would start well, yes, but would end poorly. 
And as he ended, his life was filled with envy and paranoia and hatred. And most of that hatred was directed against a man named David, the man who God would select as his successor, as Saul's successor. He was a young man, a boy, the last born in his family, a shepherd at that, a man who you and I, if we had been there in that day, would never have selected to be the king of Israel. It's easy to look back on him now and say, oh, I would have known better. I would have seen David the way God did. Malarkey. You and I would have seen David the way the people in that day did. Too young, too inexperienced, no one special, hardly made to be a king. We would have likely gone after Saul. What God saw in that man, though, was a great warrior, potentially, and a great leader, as God molded his heart. And David, even as he was being prepared to take on the role of king, continued to honor Saul in the meantime, even as Saul was trying to kill him, if you know the story out of 1 Samuel. After Saul's death at the end of 1 Samuel, there's a brief power struggle at the beginning of 2 Samuel between some of David's supporters and between Saul's army commander and one of Saul's sons. That struggle wraps up pretty quickly. By the time we get now to where we are here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, that struggle has completed, at least for the time being, and David now has consolidated his power as the king of Israel. And then, at this early point in his kingship, we see at that first verse I read out of 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 9, we see his mind go back in time to an earlier point, to a time when he made a covenant with a man named Jonathan, who is one of Saul's sons. Now, to understand that covenant, and to understand the significance of why it's coming to mind now, at this point in David's life, I need to take you back to when that covenant was first established. So if you want to put your finger at the point where you are in 2 Samuel and flip back a few chapters into 1 Samuel, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. And you'll see where this covenant between Jonathan and David is established. I'll read you the first five verses out of 1 Samuel 18. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the son, or the soul, rather, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. That's referencing to David here. Saul took David and did not let David return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. That's a very simple scene. It's a moment when two men enter into covenant. This chapter, by the way, opens immediately after David has slayed Goliath. That's a story I'm sure you're familiar with out of chapter 17. That event transfixed the attention of the nation of Israel. Here's a young boy, a teenage boy, who single-handedly kills the most fearsome Philistine warrior that the nation had ever seen. And if you know the story, Goliath was somewhere maybe between eight and nine feet tall, as we can uh, estimate out of Scripture. But David took him down in an instant. It It was hardly even a battle. It was over before it started. But all by the power of God, as you and I know. That event, though, completely changed the the psyche of the nation. What was once an insignificant little shepherd boy became this hero to the entire nation. And you know what hero worship is like. We've seen that in our own culture so much today. This little boy suddenly became the center of everyone's attention. 
including the king, who now brings him into his household and says, you're not going back to your father's house. You're part of my house now. I want you near me. We know later that Saul did that because he wanted to keep an eye on David. He didn't understand or trust him very much. So now as we open up in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, you see this covenant being established between David and between Jonathan, who's Saul's son. But I want you to see what the covenant just did. You may not have realized it as you read these verses, but something amazing just took place in these opening verses of chapter 18. First, I want you to notice how verse 1 opens. The soul of Jonathan, we're told, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. The Hebrew word there for soul, nephesh, it's a very common word in the Scripture. It means literally lifeblood or life being. It's a hard to translate word. Soul is probably one of the best ways you could translate it. It's a meaning here that says there's a living part of us that exists eternally. It exists apart from the physical nature of our body. And if David's soul and Jonathan's soul were knit together, then it, it implies sort of a lifelong, unbreakable, eternal bond that took place in that moment, sort of in a supernatural way. The word knit there, kashar in the Hebrew, it literally means to bind or to be in league together. So the, the, the impression you're left with here is essentially that Jonathan's love for David was such that he loved David as if he loved himself. It was inseparable from the love he had for himself. That love, the word there for love, abed, A-H-E-B, heb in the, in the Hebrew. It means literally a self-sacrificial kind of love. Same kind of word that's used in a Greek sense when Jesus says that we should love others as we love ourselves. It's that sense of love, a sacrificial love. So put it all together. Jonathan feels this stirring in his soul that drew him to David with a brotherly love so deep and so abiding that he knew instantly they had some eternal relationship, some eternal bond. And that personal bond, that personal relationship stood above anything else in Jonathan's life. It was self-sacrificial. And here's the interesting part. Here's the part that's really dramatic. It was so self-sacrificial that Jonathan felt compelled to abdicate the throne. That's what Jonathan just did. Who is Jonathan? Jonathan is the son of the king. Who is going to inherit the throne, logically, if Saul ceases to be king? If Saul were to die, who should be king? Well, naturally, Jonathan would have been king. Jonathan knew that. The people knew that. David knew that. And what did God say? God said through Samuel's anointing of David that it would be David who would be the king. You only have to go back a few chapters in 1 Samuel. That's 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. And you hear this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So two chapters earlier than where we are right now, David had already been anointed by Samuel to be the future king and the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him never to leave. And that, my friends, was not a secret. David knew it. Samuel knew it. Saul even knew it, which is why Saul tries to kill David. It was a, the worst kept secret in Israel was that David was supposed to succeed Saul. Now, who has the most to lose in that arrangement? Well, obviously Saul himself, but really Saul was king until the day he died, wasn't he? So Saul did not lose one day of his kingship to David. So who really had something to lose in this new arrangement? 
Jonathan. And not just because Jonathan had the the chance to lose his right to the throne. It goes deeper than that because in that day, much like it is today in some cultures still, if you were the natural heir to the throne and some other man came along and took the throne from you, you would expect to be killed. No one would leave an heir to the throne alive for a risk that it might eventually result in some kind of war, some kind of threat to the throne. So if you rose to power in place of some other man, you would kill him and any other person who might lay claim to the throne. You would wipe out the ruling family so that no one could ever come alongside later and try to take that throne back. So Jonathan and David are natural enemies by any fair definition. They should not be friends. Far from it. They should be rivals for the throne. But what does Jonathan do? Jonathan knew clearly who God had appointed. Jonathan also felt a stirring in his heart that understood that he was to be subservient to David. And he enters into a covenant, a very interesting agreement, where he establishes that David would be the successor, not Jonathan. I want you to look at the details of that covenant for a moment. He makes a covenant, he makes an agreement. We say covenant in the Scripture. You and I might use a word contract today, but it's not quite the same thing. A legal contract and a covenant are still different. Contracts can be broken. Contracts can be entered into and dissolved. Not covenants, not in the biblical sense of the word. A covenant was a lifelong, eternal agreement. And the covenant he enters into here disavows, Jonathan disavows any claim to the throne and instead offers it to David. Look what he does. He gives David his robe. I'm not talking about a bathrobe here. We're talking about the royal robe that the prince, Jonathan was prince, the prince wore signifying his authority and his right to inherit the throne. He hands that to David. What else does he give him? He gives him his armor, his his sword and his belt and his bow. Those were the implements that communicated his right to command the military and to command the, 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 the country into battle, into war. He hands all that to David. He completely turns over his authority to David in that moment, voluntarily. And then in verse 5, we hear how David prospered under the Lord in that role. So why does Jonathan do this? The question that ought to be in your mind and in my mind as we read this story, first and foremost is, what was he thinking? Why do this? Not only has he given up the throne, but he's, in a sense, thrown himself on the mercy of David. Because remember, he is still heir to the throne. Whether he goes into this covenant or not... By birthright, he still has this heir-to-the-throne position. So what he's doing now is he's putting himself in a very vulnerable position. David could still have him killed. David could still come along later and wipe him out and the rest of Saul's family. It's a very vulnerable position. What does Jonathan get out of this covenant? What would you expect him to receive in return for what he's done for David? Well, first and foremost, he gains the eternal protection of the king. Remember, this is an eternal covenant. This is one that he expects David to honor eternally, even after Saul's death, even after Jonathan's death. David is not freed from the covenant simply because Jonathan is dead. In fact, later, as you read in 1 Samuel, Jonathan clarifies the covenant to say, it is not just with me that you've made this covenant, but with my descendants. I expect you to show this loving kindness, not just to me, but to my descendants. And David agrees to that. David will assume the throne as God has intended, but when he does, he will bring Jonathan and Jonathan's descendants into his family and keep them protected eternally. That was the covenant that David and Jonathan made. It's a very interesting thing, very dramatic moment. 
And with all of that background, I think we're ready now to go back into 2 Samuel chapter 9. And understand now, as David has become king, let's look at what David does because he made that covenant with Jonathan. 2 Samuel chapter 9 again, now in verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrate himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he said, Here is your servant. Now, many of you may know the story of Mephibosheth. Many people remember him just because his name is very unique. It's a name that comes back to mind. But I don't know that many understand the significance of why David does what he does here for the sake of Jonathan. That's what we need to understand. We hear first that there is a servant in Saul's house, Ziba, we're told. And that servant is asked, is there anyone left in Saul's household who... I might show loving kindness to. And his response is, well, yeah, there's uh, one son. Uh, it's actually a son of Jonathan. And he's crippled, though, in both feet. That's kind of an interesting thing to throw in. Would you think to do that? If somebody asked you, is there anybody left in your mother's family or in your father's family? Would you think to say, oh, yeah, there's old Johnny. Of course, he's missing one right eye and he's got a, a bad left knee. And I mean, Would you start talking about him like that? It seems interesting to me that th those details became prominent right up front. But I think the answer to why goes back to what we said earlier. The servant is a little concerned, perhaps, about what David's motive is here. Why is David trying to seek out any of Saul's descendants? What would you assume, perhaps, his reason is? Well, the natural assumption is David wants to find them so he can kill them because they are heirs. They are rivals to the throne. So maybe what the servant did here was say, well, you know, there is Mephibosheth, but, you know, he's crippled in both feet. Don't worry about him. He's not a threat. I think it's mentioned in that sense to try to throw David off the track. Maybe find reason for David not to go after him. His name, we're told here, is Mephibosheth. And the word literally means in the Hebrew, dispeller of shame or someone who cuts shame into pieces. Because, in fact, he is going to be one whose shame is removed by David's grace. We first hear about this man, Mephibosheth, if you were to go back into 2 Samuel chapter 4. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read you one verse out of 2 Samuel chapter 4. This is where we first hear about Mephibosheth. Now, and this is in a moment when Jonathan and his family are fleeing from some of that early conflict that I mentioned was happening after Saul's death. If you remember, there was that early conflict about who would get the throne. During some of that internal strife and warfare in the nation of Israel, there was a moment when Jonathan's family was at risk. And here's what we hear in verse 4 of chapter 4, 2 Samuel. Now, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth's crippled, 
condition came as a result of a fall that he took when the nurse dropped him, trying to flee quickly from uh, some of the events that happened after Saul and Jonathan's death. That's the last we hear of him until now in 2 Samuel chapter 9. He's crippled. David calls for him. He's brought before David. Now, I want you to imagine that you're Mephibosheth for just a moment. You know the situation. You know your father is dead. Your grandfather is dead. You know David has inherited the throne in their place. There's been a power struggle. That's been resolved. And David has risen to the top. He's now the big cheese. He's in charge. He's got all the power. Meanwhile, you are a nobody. You're living somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. You're crippled. You're a dog. And by the way, a crippled man in the time that this was written would be similar to like a widow. Someone who could not work or feed themselves. They were at the mercy of charity from whatever source. They were a nobody. They were practically dead to the people around them. It was the worst thing you could be in that culture. And now you're dragged, literally, because you can't walk, you're dragged before the king and put in his presence. What's going through your mind? Why do you think you're there? Why do you assume you're there? Probably to be killed. Your assumption is the worst, not the best. And the king, in some sense, would have had every right to put you to death because you were a rival to the throne. No one would have taken any exception with David if he had done that. No one would have pointed a finger in David and said he was wrong. No one would have been surprised if he had done it. It would have been business as usual for the way things worked in that day. And in that moment, look what David does in verse 7 of 2 Samuel chapter 9. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show, surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. And he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. So go back and look at those verses. You start right away with the recognition that Mephibosheth was afraid. Because David has to tell him, don't be afraid. I haven't brought you here to harm you. And David understands his fear because of what I've already mentioned. This, this principle that said that an heir to the throne would be a rival to the king and would have to be killed. David says, don't worry, because I called you here to show you kindness. And why? Because Mephibosheth was a good guy? Because Mephibosheth had done all the right things? Because there was something that David owed to him? No. David tells you why. Because of something that happened before Mephibosheth was even born. What happened, of course? Because of a kindness that was shown to David through, Saul, through Jonathan specifically. Because of that, Mephibosheth is going to receive the kindness of the king now. And then Mephibosheth, recognizing that he's receiving something he doesn't deserve... He certainly didn't earn, and he knows he didn't expect. He turns to the king and he says, Well, who am I that you should regard a dead dog like me in such a kind way? 
And it's really a rhetorical question because David doesn't bother answering it. But it's just an odd recognition of the circumstances. It's this moment that came upon Mephibosheth when he saw what was happening. And he recognized the grace the king was bestowing upon him in that moment. And at the same time, he had that thought in his mind that said, Why? It makes no sense. I shouldn't be getting this. Why would you do this for me? And the answer to that question is, it's not about you, Mephibosheth. It has nothing to do with you. But it is for reasons that extend beyond you that I am showing you kindness. So, for what reason, and really what reason alone, is Mephibosheth receiving kindness? Because the king is a covenant-keeping king. Because of David's faithfulness, Mephibosheth is receiving kindness. Because, after all, who's going to hold David accountable? but himself. Who would be the one to stand before the king in this moment and say, ah, wait a minute, you promised Jonathan you would show kindness to his family. You've got to keep that promise. Who would have dared do that to David? Who could have? No one. If David was not a covenant-keeping king, then Mephibosheth would have no hope. But because David was a covenant-keeping king, Mephibosheth received kindness above even his hope. It's an amazing turn of events for a man who had no expectation of anything from the king except death. That was his only expectation. David was giving love and kindness on account of Jonathan. The word here, kindness, as it's translated in my text, some of you may have it translated loving kindness, that word in the Hebrew is chesed, C-H-E-S-E-D. Very important word in the Hebrew. It shows up time and time again in the Old Testament, giving the example of where you see it in the Exodus Chapter 34, verse 6, when the Lord is speaking before Moses on the mountain and he passes before Moses and he says this, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That word loving kindness, exactly the same word that's being used here in Second Samuel. It's this special word out of the Old Testament that describes a kind of gracious kindness that is eternal, that is everlasting, and that is completely and unmitigatedly unmerited favor. Cannot be at all attributed to the receiver, but comes exclusively out of the graciousness of the giver. It is that sense of the word being used here again in the way David is bestowing kindness onto Mephibosheth. We have a word for it, right? A simple word. We call it grace. It's the same idea. It's the basis for David's actions. He was restoring Mephibosheth here to a position of honor. Do you notice the things that came with that loving kindness? Particularly this this concept of eating at the king's table regularly throughout the rest of his life. This isn't just about saying, I'm not going to kill you. It's a step beyond that. It's saying, I'm going to honor you as if you were one of my own children. Forget who your real father was. Forget that you're a descendant of Saul, that you were the son of Jonathan. Forget all of that, Mephibosheth. Do you know who you are today? You are a son of David. You are a son of the king. And you're going to be treated as a son of the king because you're going to sit at the king's table and eat with him regularly, which only the family of the king would have normally been able to do. Can you imagine what's going through Mephibosheth's mind at this point? To be dragged before the king with an expectation that you're about to be killed, only to find out, no, you're not going to be killed. You're going to be treated like my son. The 
way his mind must have been spinning in that moment, trying to make sense of it all. And that's what prompted him to say, well, who am I that you would do this for me? And the answer came back, it's not you. It's for a covenant I made with someone before you. And it's because I am who I am as the king who keeps covenants that you are receiving this. Not because of who you are. See, it's not about you. It's about me. Because the king's honor as a covenant-keeping king meant so much to him that he wasn't going to dare let anyone in Saul's family go without receiving that loving kindness. Not because anyone in the family had right to receive it. You remember how it started? David said, is there anyone left in his family? He didn't even know Mephibosheth. He just knew of a covenant that he had made with his father. And this story, by the way, is not just a story about David and Mephibosheth. This is a picture. You know, we talk in terms of types. Isaiah, uh, Isaac, for example, out of the story of Abraham and Isaac, we call Isaac a type of Christ. Because in his life, in the way Isaac's life lives out, and in some of the events of his life recorded in Scripture, we see in those events things that mimic Christ or point to Christ. That's what we mean by a type. David, we also know out of Scripture, is a type of Christ. In the way David's life plays out in many respects, we see pictures of Christ. Here is one of those pictures. As Chuck Colson said, maybe the most amazing picture of grace in the Old Testament. Maybe the best picture possible of the way God has reconciled believers, you and I, to Himself. By what He said, by what He showed happening between David and Mephibosheth. You see in this story an exact picture of the way our King, Jesus Christ, looked upon you and I before we were drawn to Him, before we came into that relationship with Him, while we were still dead in our trespasses, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. We were all one of those people. We don't like to think about it, perhaps. Maybe we don't even remember that time in our life, depending on at what point we became a believer in Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, there was a day in our past when we walked as a disobedient son, as an unbeliever, and we were dead in our trespasses and sins, just as Mephibosheth described himself, a dead dog, someone that the king should pay no attention to, except perhaps to drag us before him and to kill us. Because the Scripture says that the wages of that sin, of that sinful life, of that, of that evil, unrepentant heart, should have been death. Similarly, Mephibosheth's only expectation out of his life should have been death at the hands of the king, and rightly so. Likewise, we were in that same state. We were like that poor Mephibosheth. But by the grace of God, I really love the picture here. I don't think it's coincidental, by the way, that Mephibosheth was made to have crippled feet because it meant that when he was dragged before the king, he could not stand in his own power before the king. In the time of Mephibosheth, it was a picture in physical form. But for you and I, it's just as true spiritually. Before God made us clean by the power of Christ, we could not have stood in the presence of the, of the King of the universe in our own power. We could only stand by His power. We could only be made to stand by His righteousness. It's a perfect picture. By the grace of the King, we were made to stand. Romans 5.1 tells it this way. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. By grace we now stand before him cleansed. Likewise, Mephibosheth had the power to stand figuratively by the grace he was shown by that king. Now, the question falls to each of us. What did we do to receive that grace? What exactly did we contribute to the opportunity to eat and dine at the king's table, which is our promise, by the way, eternally, as Christ returns to earth to rule, we will rule with him, we are told, and we will dine with him as a fellow heir. What did we do? In a word, nothing. We did no more than Mephibosheth did. Did Mephibosheth run into the king's chamber and say one day, you need to honor your covenant and bring me into your home? No. Did Mephibosheth ever send a letter and say, I'd like to be included in your family, I'd like to be received as your son? No. Did Mephibosheth have any expectation of that moment? No. What did Mephibosheth hope? He hoped that the king would never know he existed. Because in his state, as it exists, as he was before the moment of grace, he was an enemy of the king. The worst thing that could happen would be that the, enemy, that the king would discover that an enemy still lived because it would mean certain destruction for that enemy. His only hope was to hide from the king. But then brought before the king, not by his own decision, but by the decision of the king, he then is placed in a position to receive the king's grace, unmerited favor, on the basis, by the way, of an earlier covenant. That's how we received our faith as well. In Genesis 22, by the way, you find out about a covenant that our king, Christ, made with our ancestor, and because of that earlier covenant, he is showing grace to you and I today. Did you know that? What earlier covenant? Well, in Galatians 3, verse 6, Paul tells us about that earlier covenant. Paul says, even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, Paul says, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So, then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham was brought into a covenant by the power of God. And God said to Abraham, because of your faithfulness, I will make a covenant with you that through your descendants, I will bless many nations, to include the Gentile nations. Because God made that covenant with Abraham, he is a covenant-keeping king. And to this day, he continues to honor that covenant with Abraham by bringing men and women like you and I, Gentiles, dragged, if you will, into the court of the king, ready to be receiving our our wages of our sin, but instead receiving His grace because of that earlier covenant. And by faith, Paul says, we are ushered into that covenant. We are grafted in. We are made a part of that earlier promise. And we now will share in the promises that were given to Abraham. Promises to dwell with Christ eternally in His new kingdom. Promises to eat at His table and to be considered His son. As Paul says, by faith we become sons of Abraham, just as Mephibosheth was a son of Jonathan. It's a spiritual sonship, but no less a sonship. And it is a spiritual inheritance, but no less an inheritance. You and I have that reconciliation made possible by God's grace because of His covenant keeping, not because of ours, praise the Lord. If it were because we could do something or because we could keep a promise or because we were faithful, none of us would get in because none of us can meet that standard to the perfection God demands. 
But because He is who He is, we have that inheritance waiting. That is the reconciliation, the vertical, if you will, that God has made for each of us that He pictures through what was done with Mephibosheth. The Scripture, as you know, speaks of David as being a man after God's own heart. And we know David stumbled. We know David had significant sin in his life. He made serious mistakes in his life. I believe when the Scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart, it is specifically referring to the way David works in moments like this. Because for all his faults, and he was a man like you and I, and and prone to sin just as we are, yet he knew one thing perhaps better than any of us do. He knew how to keep a covenant. He was a man after God's own heart because he was a very good example of a man who keeps his promises, who keeps covenants, who honors his word, even above his name. And likewise, our Lord is a similar king to us today. We can be confident in the assurance we have by faith because of who he is, not because of who we are. And having been renewed by the Spirit and then reconciled by his son's sacrifice on the cross, we now draw close to God And I ask you, are you prepared to do what a son or a daughter of the king is called to do? It's one thing to understand how we've been reconciled, but we've already said it was by God's power, not by ours. So that leaves open a question. What is within our power? What are we now to do as a son or a daughter of the king? First and foremost, how are we to respond to others now that we have this special relationship with the king? I pray that what we've heard this morning, though, will do a great work in our hearts. I pray that if you do not know this king, if, if something I've said to you this morning does not resonate, there is someone in this room or in the sound of my voice who may have heard these words and said, I don't think I've ever had that moment. I don't remember being pulled before the king, so to speak, of recognizing my own sinfulness and of acknowledging the fact that in that moment there is grace available. If that is of some distant memory or no memory at all, then I pray that in this moment God would do that work in your heart and you might recognize an opportunity has been laid before you by the power of the Word of God to step into the grace that is available and to know the Lord as He makes opportunity. That is in His power to do, but the call of the Gospel goes out. And it is our opportunity to respond as we hear it. I pray that response would take place for those who have not already done so. Let's go to the Lord in in prayer as we close. Dear Father, we praise Your holy name and we exalt Your Word, Father, to its rightful place. The means by which men are brought to faith, Father, is clear. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ, you tell us. And I pray, Father, that as the Word has been proclaimed this morning, that first and foremost, Father, that it has been proclaimed rightly and truthfully according to your power, that where there may have been error, Father, that you would graciously restore the hearts and and ears of those who have heard it to know the truth, despite what has been spoken. And where it has been truthful, Father, and Where it has been according to your will, I pray you would magnify its work in the hearts of those who hear. May we go out of this room, Father, confident in our position before you, but knowing it is entirely based on your work and not our own. And that we may, uh, Father, understand humbly that with that opportunity to dine with you, we now bring new responsibilities. We have new opportunities to serve and that we would be uh, mindful, Father, to live out those opportunities, to, to serve according to how you call us. Thank you, Father, for this morning in worship and in truth. I praise you, Father, for the chance to meet and for all the work that goes into this opportunity every week and for the diligence of those who gather. I praise you and I give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.